0: Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Ann Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC, and I'll be your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from stormwater and wastewater to solid waste management, remediation, climate adaptation, sustainability, the list goes on. And today is part one of a two-part series. We're focusing on ESG, which stands for Environment Social Governance, and we'll get more into what that is later. But what we're going to do is get into the detail with two uh, leading folks in the ESG space, Dr. Matthew Gardner, he is founding and managing partner of SustainServe, and Christina Mendoza, a senior consultant with SustainServe and chair of EBC's Ascending Professionals Committee, long-term EBC supporter. Thank you, Christina. (laughs) And Dr. Gardner, do you want to go by Dr. Gardner, Matthew, Matt?
1: You can call me whatever you like, but Matt is good.
0: Okay. You mostly go by Matt. Well, welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. So let's uh, find out a little bit more about the two of you, your background, how you came into this space. So I'll start with you, Matt.
1: Yeah. So I am a chemist by training. Got my doctorate in chemistry many years ago at Michigan State University. Found my way back to the Boston area where I grew up and did a postdoctoral appointment at, at, at MIT. And fell into MIT's early sustainability, corporate sustainability, climate change research and education world, and um, saw an opportunity back then to start working with companies who were just coming to grips with these ideas, and started sustainserve with two of my partners, and you know, t- uh, about 22 years later, here we are, and see them going strong.
0: That's great. Any uh, fun side things you like to do?
1: Many things. I, um, my, in my spare time, I teach a course on corporate sustainability um, at the Harvard Extension School, which I do that every spring term, which is great. usually have 100, 120 students or so. Uh, it's a great way to stay connected into, the, into this world and to think about it in a different way than our consulting work. I'm also the chair of the Conservation Commission in the town where I live in Natick. And so it's a way of both, you know, tying together these topics of environment and sustainability and responsible development um, and give back to my community at the same time. So that's, that's how I fill my, my spare time.
0: Yeah, that's great. And Christina, how did you come into the ESG space?
2: Sure. So I started in the environmental science and conservation biology space and really thought I was going to stay technical there and, and kind of have, but ended up evolving and uh, going for my MBA. And so got the business and the science collaboration there. And at this time, it was really a perfect fit for this field of sustainability that was really becoming a, a real job that that you could have. And so- I started at an environmental engineering firm and got a lot of experience there. And then um, about two and a half years ago, came here to sustain serve. And so about eight years total of really being deep in this space around the topics of greenhouse gas accounting, sustainability reporting, ESG strategy, all that good stuff, and really a broad number of of industries. So I've stayed kind of in this space because it's kind of always changing, keeps you on your toes. And like you said, been very involved in EBC for a number of years and chairing the Ascending Professionals Committee. That's been awesome and glad to be involved here as well. And a little bit of side effort or side hobbies. I also chair the board of the Charlestown-based nonprofit, e Inc. And so they provide science and climate education for Boston's underserved youth and on the side side, I'll do cooking and sports and soccer and pickleball. That's the latest obsession. Everybody's into the pickleball (laughs) these
0: days. (laughs) I couldn't stay away. I think I first met you probably at the EBC's softball game years ago. So something I did not want to participate in, but something you very much were interested in participating in. So (laughs) Yep, and I stuck around. You stuck around even after the softball. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. I um I read a little bit about sustained source pounding on your company's uh like blog or or news page, and it's a really interesting story. I love that you met your co-founders during a course in a teeny tiny little Swiss village, and uh, from there these sort of interesting little beginnings in a little village, you built this big successful business. So I imagine at that time sustainability was more of a buzzword, but not maybe a fully grown business opportunity yet. So h- how did you grow? A company from a buzzword into this, <laughs> into this space, um, this ESG sustainability space.
1: Yeah, and our founding was really exactly that. I mean, it was back when I was at MIT. We we had a training course that we were holding in a tiny little Swiss village on the side of a mountain in the Alps. And my two partners, Bernt and Stefan, who um, sit in our Zurich, Switzerland office, um, came out as guest speakers for this course or for this this, this training we were doing. And you know, we as As academics do, we stayed up late in the bar, drinking beer, talking about life and business in the future, and saw an opportunity to start working with companies on this. And sustainability was a buzzword at that point. You know, you know certainly the, the science of climate change was well underway and being ex- explored. But companies were at the early stage of starting to think about what the implications of this were for them. And you know we saw an opportunity to help them strategize, help them make the connection between addressing, Climate change at that time was mostly focused on climate or uh, corporate sustainability was really, you know, uh, framed in that way. But then, um, you know, over time, it's just grown into a a variety of different topics all centered around this idea of, of companies being good, responsible, ethical citizens on this planet. How can they both accomplish their goal of creating value for their shareholders and their stakeholders, but also doing so in a way that's responsible, ethical and And, good for the environment, you know, and that's the core of the work that we do. i I think we can have our cake and eat it too. Got to be smart about it. and right. and And that's where companies are really starting to pay a lot of attention.
0: so some of the things that I hear are corporate sustainability, e s g. what are the what are the words we should uh, define here in the beginning before we kind of go into more detail on sort of ESG in the New England marketplace?
1: I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that it is an alphabet soup of acronyms and it's, you know, just spending some time understanding what that is, you know, so sustainability, corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility, environmental, social governance, all of these things in our world mean basically the same thing. You know, it's it's understanding what are the issues that a company may, uh, where a company may have, significant impacts on the world and on the the people who live on this planet Um, and what are the issues that if not managed properly may impact the company and help or hinder its ability to do what it's there to do which is to make money over the long term to create value over the long term for its stakeholders and so you know again you could call it what you wish you know esg csr corporate responsibility that's all good um, but it really is, you know, it's centered around this idea of of understanding how companies need to create value, how, you know, how do companies um, need to operate? You know, in our world, a truly sustainable company is one that will be in business for a long time. And we now know that a lot of different things impact that and we need to understand them, manage them and, and drive performance in the right direction so we can stay in business for a long time.
0: So it, it seems that if we transition into ESG in sort of New England, the marketplace, because EBC is EBC of New England, it it seems like a, a lot of sectors are facing pressure to address the ESG issues, the environment, social governance issues. Are there differences to the different sectors? Um, how are they addressing these things? Christina, do you have a, a sense for that? Sure. So I think
2: just starting out, a lot of times people are really just trying to get their ducks in a row. And it doesn't really matter exactly what sector you're in, um, unless you're kind of a really specialized one, you want to be able to understand who are my stakeholders? Who do I have to answer to? And whether that's a stockholder or an employee or the environment, um, and what are the topics that they care about? And so how am I going to go about addressing those topics to meet those stakeholder needs? And so that's like super at the core of it. And so those similarities are a lot more prevalent than the differences, I think, at the the starting point across sectors. Um, What we are seeing, though, is as you mature, as you kind of grow into this space and start figuring out exactly what you need to hone in on to make progress in this field, there are some nuances and differences coming up. So for example, like Matt mentioned, there's an alphabet soup, there's some standards you might have heard of SASB, so Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, or SBTI, science-based targets initiative. Again, all kind of irrelevant, but the main topic is that they're starting to make sector-specific requirements. And so you are going to need to understand exactly how to answer those, cater to those, make sure the topics that you think are important are the topics that those industry standards have defined for your sector. And, And then you kind of get after it that way. But Matt, do you have anything to add there?
1: Yeah, I mean, really the the main objective or the main responsibility of a company that's wanting to engage in the ESG conversation is to listen to your stakeholders, you know, be them, as Christina said, if those are investors, if that's customers, if that's employees, if that's the communities where you're operating, you need to really spend time listening to what their needs and expectations are, because that can then help you craft an ESG program a portfolio of efforts that that really addresses their needs um, you know I tell our consultants all the time you know part of our job or a very important part of our job is to be a good listener and to really understand from our clients you know what's driving this what are your stakeholders saying because that can help us then provide guidance and, and counsel back to our clients to craft programs that'll that'll meet their expectations that's that's really the crux of it
0: and maybe we should zoom backwards just briefly because it brings up where is the pressure coming from? And you just mentioned, Matt, that there you you have to kind of be a good listener and and hear what people are asking you. Who are the people that are asking you to do this? Is it coming from clients and who's asking for sector specific uh, stuff?
1: Yeah, I'll go first, and then I want Christina to chime in. but you know, Back in the day when we first started SustainServe, this is back in 2001, 2002, a lot of it was driven internally by companies where they were deciding that, where they felt that they could, um, you know, they could maybe get some differentiation in their space or uh, differentiation from their competitors. Um, they could be seen as a good, responsible, ethical corporate citizen and that there might be market opportunities as a result. But really over time that's evolved and there has, you know, there are other pressures, other expectations coming on to, onto companies. Um, a key driver these days is, is pressure from the investor community. Investors want to understand where there might be risks in the companies that they are investing in or whose assets they hold. So they want to understand that uh, climate risk is a really hot topic right now. What are the risks that companies may face from climate change, uh, customers, so if you are in the supply chain of a large of, of another company, uh, we're seeing a lot of pressure coming from those customers back to their suppliers because they want to understand, are there risks involved in working with, with you as a supplier? Again, those risks could come from climate change. They could come from human rights. They could come from a variety of different directions, but they want to know that. Um, even employees, employees want to work for companies with whom they share values. We see that a lot especially with a younger generation of, of, of people who you know they want to associate themselves with companies that are responsible, that are ethical, that are thinking about climate change, that care about human rights. And so the pressures come from a number of different directions. And part of our job is to help our clients understand where those pressures are coming from, what are their expectations for the, the companies um, of interest, and, and what can they do about that? How can they put a program in place, set goals? monitor progress in in an appropriate way so that they know that they're going to be moving the needle in the right direction ultimately.
2: And the one piece that I would add is just this hasn't been historically a regulatory-driven space, but we are starting to see that pop up. And especially in the environmental space with the greenhouse gas accounting space, it's starting to light a fire under a lot of companies that Yes, they were getting after some of this stuff. They had all those pressures that Matt just mentioned. Those are significant value creating or breaking pressures. But now that these these regulatory pressures are coming through from from SEC and international pressures, they have to start sorting out some, some greenhouse gas calculations that are going to be potentially regulatory requirements. So that's starting to be a real significant influence.
1: There's a very important set of regulations that are coming online over in the EU um, called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD, um, another acronym. But CSRD is mandating that companies talk about a variety of different esg related issues in a very meaningful and structured and ultimately auditable way. Companies are really going to be held to account for the statements that they make around this stuff. And th- it's... Uh, The CSRD will apply to EU companies, European Union-based companies. However, the way the rules are written is that even if you're not EU-based, if you are a US company that is doing um, more than 40 million euros worth of business in the EU, then if you want to keep doing business in the EU, you need to comply with these laws as well. So we're seeing a lot of interest from our clients, both in Europe, out of our Zurich and Frankfurt offices but also for our our US-based clients, because they do a lot of business over in Europe. So this is a a great example of how regulatory pressure is really, you know, sticking its nose up and is going is is going to become, is becoming a very key driver in companies engaging in this conversation.
0: Yeah, that's a significant, that's gonna be a significant player then. I mean, yeah, 40 million euros, I can imagine there's quite a few companies doing that. Uh, that it, it will affect
1: <laughs> it sounds like a big number but you know for a large company it's not, not for very a large much, Company,
0: yeah <laughs> it,
1: it's not very much business in order for this to be triggered for you
0: right so is there anything that makes new england unique um here in terms of the culture of our companies here are they pushing the envelope are many of them doing more than they than other regions or are we a little bit behind what's the perspective there
1: I think, you know, here in New England, um, you know, there there's a, a few factors at play. You know, there's the classic kind of New England culture of that pragmatic, you know, kind of approach to doing things. Um, you know, maybe that plays a little bit of a role. It is, uh, you know, in terms of kind of the politics, not to get into politics, but I think there's a little bit of a of an element of, you know, this part of the country is is, you know, fairly tuned into various environmental issues, various social issues. And so I think that that's driving it. You know, ultimately, I mean, here in new England, here in Massachusetts, we have I think 17 or so companies in the fortune 500 In Connecticut, there's 15, you know, uh, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, there's more, you know, there, 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 there's also some. And so, um, you know, these companies are some of the biggest companies in the world and they are, you know, they have investors if they're publicly traded, as most of them are. Um, you know, they have investors, they have big supply chains, they operate globally, you know, so they're all just along for the ride, like every other big company in the world is right now.
2: And another aspect, too, is is the academic presence, the the higher education presence that we have here in this region and, and the influences and the research and the collaborations and the think tanks and the labs. It has an influence on on kind of the innovation in this space that's coming out of these companies. I mean, for example, the little plug, but the EVC's Climate Adaptation Forum and the collaboration with the UMass Boston Sustainable Solutions Lab. So it's there's a lot of opportunity for that type of collaboration to take place. And I think this space, ESG, sustainability, it's a kind of unique space in that it's it benefits from collaboration. It's You're not supposed to be keeping all of your your secrets to helping the environment or operating in a uh, ethical manner to yourself. And so it requires that collaboration. And so I think that's kind of a unique um, environment that we have here in the region as well.
1: I think one other factor here in new England, um, a a geographically specific issue is the whole issue of energy supply here, here in new England. If you're operating in, in an energy intensive business, you know, it's something that's high on the radar of the of the politicians as well as you know folks in the energy industry. Um, you know, a lot of the energy in this part of the country, for example, comes from natural gas, and there's a lot of conversation around new pipelines, whether we need those versus renewables and you know offshore wind and all of that. But energy is a really important issue here in New England, and I think a lot of companies, particularly those that are doing business that is energy intensive, um, you know, energy is a is a very a very critical issue. And And something that they are paying attention to and wanting to make sure they've got good, you know steady access to reliable sources of power so they can keep doing business.
0: yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on. so Christina brought in this academic world that we have here in New England, and it brought up the question of public versus private companies, the type of company that you are. How does that impact your focus on ESG? So I'm assuming, as you've already mentioned, Matt, you've got investors. they are, Really looking to make sure that your ducks are in a row, as you say, um, that makes a difference versus a privately held company might have more leeway in in deciding whether or not to really be on board with the SG right now.
2: If I were to hop in, I think the leeway comes from the level of transparency, and so while we're not, we talked we talked a little bit about the regulatory space and the drivers there and how that might be more applicable or specifically applicable to those public companies but the private companies also have to find that sweet spot of what they're going to disclose and what they're not going to disclose because they have their employee base they have the potential employees that are going to come in they also have customers a huge one that Matt touched on was the supply chain if you're being if you're a small private company but you're being asked by a larger public company to disclose some of these key ESG metrics and pieces of information you're going to have to make that decision and start building it into how your company operates in that way
1: we have a number of clients who are quite large privately held companies family owned for example you know one of our clients here in new england is is that it's a you know large family owned business that is in the supply chain to large automotive companies and they're being pressured quite significantly by the large automotive companies to be disclosing information, providing data about the impacts that they're having. And, you know, and and we're just seeing more and more of that. So, you know, while privately held companies may not face the same pressure, say from investors in the way that publicly traded companies do, um, there's still those pressures there. Even from the investor side of it, I've seen these family owned companies where, you know, the new generation of owners, the new generation of family members, you know, the younger generation, is coming online and and taken over you know they're they're coming in and being on the sitting on the board and assuming leadership positions in the company and there's clear there's clearly a demographic shift you know that the younger generation is thinking about things like climate change human rights all of these different issues that fall under the esg umbrella and so whether or not they're publicly traded they're still going to be pressuring you know this company that they own part of to be operating in a manner that's consistent with their values And so, you know, no one is really immune to this pressure anymore. It's really a question of how much pressure and, you know, for the companies to make a decision as to whether they're going to respond to that pressure or not.
0: Right. And if we follow that thread a little bit, if you are the CEO of a privately owned company or say you're a new family member taking over, um, you're going to start becoming more aware of these issues and you need to somehow get started on your ESG plan because, I don't know, I don't know if probably home companies have boards, maybe they do, but somebody's pressuring you or you're deciding that you want to put the pressure on yourself. How do you get started with developing this? I assume there's a huge amount of data you need to start collecting and maybe have never collected before.
1: Well, I think the important thing and part of the process is to is to in a systematic and orderly and efficient way to understand what data do we need to collect? You know, what is that information? And so when we work with a company who's just starting out in the ESG space, and believe it or not, there is very large companies that are just starting out in the ESG space, you know, the first thing they need to understand is, you know, who are the stakeholders um, that matter, you know, which ones really, you know, are the ones that, you know, have the ability to, are, are very interested in what you're doing, which ones have the ability to impact your business, kind of classic stakeholder identification stuff, you know, whose opinion matters in this, you know, that's step one. The next step is to then have very detailed conversations with them to say, you know, out of the hundreds of issues that fall under environmental social governance, which ones matter? You know, which ones matter to your stakeholders? Which ones may impact your business? Which ones might your business impact? And to go through a structured process of saying, you know, out of these hundred issues, you know, hundreds of issues, what are the 10 or 12? topics that really matter, that matter to your stakeholders, that matter to your business, where you might be having a big impact on the world. And focus your efforts on that, because then you can not, because then you don't have to be boiling the ocean and and collecting, you know, terabytes of data about everything under the sun. You can focus your limited time, limited bandwidth, limited resources on those things uh, that really uh, matter to your stakeholders and to your business. That that's the next, you know, step. So it's who are your stakeholders? Figure out what to focus on. Then start thinking about the data and say, okay, let's start gathering the data. What information do I need to gather across the company? You know, is it energy and greenhouse gas information? Is it information about my supply chain? Is it diversity, equity, and inclusion data? Whatever it is, then you can be focused in a meaningful way on those, those data sets. Then you can think about setting goals and monitoring progress over time, you know, are we moving the needle in the right direction? Um, and then you really off to the races, you know, then you can choose to communicate internally and externally about what it is you're doing in the form of a sustainability report, or some other kind of communication. And then lastly, you know, this is really kind of an iterative loop, then go back and talk to your stakeholders and say, hey, we have started disclosing some stuff, we've started reporting, um, we set some goals, what do you think? And then you get that feedback, and you go and you course correct, and you start, you know, adjusting what you're doing so that you're addressing the expectations of these stakeholders and keeping them happy. I mean, ultimately, that's what you're wanting to do is to keep your your investors happy, keep your customers happy, keep your employees happy, um, keep the communities where you're operating happy. That's that's the goal of this exercise. Um, you know, if you do that, then you're you're going to be sitting pretty and 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 doing all right from an E S and G perspective.
2: And I think if you were to pull it back a little too, I mean, those are all the specifics of what you have to do. But just listening to the recap of that, you're talking to a number of different groups. So your role as whatever level you are in the organization, if you're tasked with this effort of starting with ESG, you really need to tap into different sectors of the business that you wouldn't normally be talking to from a strictly environment or a strictly uh, compliance and and ethics role in an organization. And so. That kind of becomes, if you're in this role and looking to try and do this, that can become your kind of superpower of being able, to be, being able to speak to those different folks within the organization, really understanding how they view these topics, helping them to understand how these topics might be relevant to them, kind of that spreading and socializing of these topics in a way that's digestible for people that this isn't their everyday job. And so that's only going to help you along the way doing all those steps that match a summarized of, of the data collection and the goal setting and the progress reports.
0: What's interesting to me is because you don't have a clear set of this is ESG and these are the things you need to collect data on. It's very personalized company to company uh, based on their own perspective on how they interpret ESG. I find that really fascinating because oftentimes, I feel like in the EVC world, things that our member companies do are very reliant on, well, this is the regulatory environment that we are operating in. These are the um, points of data we need to collect to be in compliance with this regulation. But there is no regulation here. So you're just, I mean, you're not winging it, but you're kind of coming up with your own path every single time you look at a new company and and a new ESG program. Is is that right?
1: (laughs) I think that it's evolving. Um, there is some level of standardization. Christina mentioned earlier earlier that there are some sector-specific standards out there for what companies talk about. So if you're in the retail sector, then there's a certain set of disclosures that the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board (SASB) asks you to disclose. There's um, if you're in the in the in the uh, the heavy industry or the chemical industry or in the pharmaceuticals, there's standard sets of disclosures. So there is some standardization. This concept of identifying what's relevant to you and your stakeholders—the term of art that we use in the, in the ESG space—is called materiality. So, as you go and figure out what issues are material to your business, there is an opportunity to customize. And you know, because if you're a pharmaceutical company operating, you know, in Kendall Square in Cambridge, versus a pharmaceutical company operating in Tokyo, there may be some, some, you know, some cultural, some geographic differences that are important for you that need to be paid attention to. And, and so we want companies to have the opportunity to recognize that and to address those issues in the way that they, they see fit. At the same time, if you're a pharmaceutical company in any part of the world, there are issues around you know, diversity in the management team, for example, or around pharmaceuticals in the environment. This is traces of, pharma, of uh, pharmaceutical compounds that are appearing in wastewater, for example. That's something that uh, no matter where you are, it's an important issue, and it's something that the pharma industry needs to be uh, needs to be addressing.
2: But I think, too, even just those examples, it's not a nice cut and dry. Here's the standard. Go answer these questions. You're good to go. It's which standard is important to the people that I'm answering to, And which standard has the questions and the topics that they want me to be talking about because there's, standards and and disclosures that have to do with human rights, and then they don't touch upon environment at all. But if you have some stakeholders that really care about those key sets of questions, then you better be looking at that standard and and disclosing it each year. And so I kind of think about it more as there's ESG and sustainability boundaries around all of these tons of topics. And then there's efforts to categorize them and group them to help make it easier to figure out Oh, I really need to be answering that standard that has this set of disclosures because of x, y, and Z, because I did my materiality or my stakeholders care about that. So it's just a little bit more um, strategic, I guess than than a re- reporting or regulatory.
1: I'd like to add just one other thing, and that is, you know we talk about stakeholders and you know the pressures that they're applying, and you know using them as a driver for a lot of this. Don't forget that some of the key stakeholders in a company are in fact the the leadership of the organization itself. you know so it's not a question of a CEO sitting back and and he or she saying, okay, what's everyone telling me to do today? You know, a, a lot of times CEOs and uh, leadership of organizations have decided that this is the right way to do business. this is the legacy that they want to leave behind. This is the kind of organization that they want to run and they and and they drive it because they feel it's the right thing to do. That's absolutely a legitimate, um, pressure, if you will. That is another key driver for why companies are doing this. And and for many organizations, it's a quite powerful one.
0: So Christina was talking about sort of the, the multitude of people you might be talking to. You kind of do need to develop your own path. Matt, you've talked about that as well, where, no, there's not really a set regulatory environment here, but there are some general standards. But ultimately, there's a lot of doing a lot of this work. Um, recreating it for each company. So, is that one of the common challenges that might be faced across multiple com- companies? Sort of the whole the whole ESG space. Is it a common challenge? What are some other common challenges that that are out there for for the ESG
1: space? I think there's a few. You know, first and foremost, I think you know you've you were just touching on it. I mean, one is that people can feel a bit overwhelmed by the breadth and depth of all of the different topics that fall under the ESG umbrella, and that's where we really counsel a smart, strategic approach. To to filtering that down to the ten or twelve topics that really matter, and that's a fair bit of our business. We spend a lot of time talking with companies and helping them through a process to figure out what matters to the business. What do you need to be talking about and thinking about, and building programs around, um, in order to address these 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 concerns or these issues. So that's that's certainly one is kind of helping you know getting over the intimidation factor of a pretty complicated space and it's one area where i think we're you know pretty good at taking a complicated set of topics and distilling them down to a fairly practical set of actions that's one another one is just you know as the you know the culture of leadership in organizations is is shifting i mean you know 20 years ago to have a conversation with a ceo or a board about climate change or about diversity or about human rights Um, was not always easy. You know, it was not a straight line connection for many people between those topics and the quarterly earnings performance expectations that these companies face. Um, You know, so getting people or, you know, people starting to understand how these different topics may in fact influence value creation ultimately um, is another or has been another challenge. I think, you know, people are starting to realize that they're you know that there are these connections and in many cases climate change does represent a real you know a material risk to a business and it needs to be thought about i think one of the hardest or most interesting challenges in my in, in my experience is that in talking about this stuff there's an expectation that companies who engage in the ESG space that they will be transparent about what's going on within their organization and getting people comfortable with this transparency is really interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. there, you know, companies are expected now to be talking about things that they might never have spoken about publicly. You know, they're being taught, you know, asked to to talk about and disclose data on places where they're doing really well, but also maybe in places where they're not doing so well. And so to get people comfortable with that is always an interesting exercise. Uh, particularly for the general counsels of these companies who are kind <laughs> right, of, yes. you know, their, their job is to protect their company. Right. Um, so that's a really interesting one. And so for companies who want to do well and kind of really get moving, you know, that that comfort with transparency, I think, is a really key hurdle to to get over so that you can, you know, start thinking about gathering data, about talking about these different topics.
2: And if I were to pull out a kind of specific example, that's on the top of mind of a really key challenge area, I would say it's scope three emissions. So calculating scope three. So that's your value chain emissions. So up and down your supply chain, your value chain, how are you getting products into your organization? Um, And then how are they leaving your organization? But beyond that, Is there travel of employees that I need to account for? Is there waste that I need to account for emissions? So genuinely the entire value chain of your organization and trying to quantify the emissions of that. So at the first look at it, that's a wild topic and concept to calculate, and there are standards where we're really kind of deep in it, and, and a lot of companies are coming to the table with this, but at first look of it, it's a ton of data to collect. It's a lot of new concepts to understand of how to quantify something that really hasn't been quantified in this space before for in a in a formalized way. Um, And so I think that topic can be kind of intimidating for for people and just the industry overall, because as we've talked about, sustainability, ESG, it's evolving. And this is also a space that's evolving and really fine-tuning exactly how it's quantified. And so I think it all goes back to that there's not that cut and dry, do this and achieve this, get the check mark. Um, it's a little bit more even in in this quantification step, it's a little bit more strategic and and um kind of problem solving and solutions thinking.
1: I think in the greenhouse gas world, um you know and let's just use greenhouse gases as as a as an important example. You know most companies who are doing e s and g in some form are thinking about climate change or thinking about greenhouse gas data you know, calculating the greenhouse gases that are emitted from the fuels that you burn or from the electricity that you use is pretty straightforward. You know, it's basic, it's, you know, high school math. Um, you know, if you have decent quality data, then you can do that pretty well. But to Christina's point, when you start thinking about the impact of the products that you sell or the, or the, the climate impacts of the raw materials that you use to manufacture your products, it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. Um, You know, you're going out and gathering data from many different places um, in your value chain. Some of it is probably good. Some of it's probably not so good. Um, And ultimately, it's all, you know, essentially an estimate in a way. And that's another challenge that we see is that for companies who are used to reporting financial data and that's audited down to the penny, to then be going and publicly reporting data um, that is estimated that has significant error bars associated with it, that can be a challenge for them to get to get comfortable with.
0: And I can see how this is a sort of a cascading effect where your um, you're now starting to have to ask all your partners invasive questions that well, they like questions that they may feel are invasive and they don't want to disclose to you, but it's part of your reporting that you need to find out from this company what their emissions are, and it's got this challenge upon challenge of, okay, and now I've got to ask all these employees of mine to go get this information from all their partners. And it adds a a lot of layers there, I would imagine.
1: The story I like to tell, and I tell this when I teach, is that, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I was speaking at a conference and this gentleman approached me afterwards and said, I'd like to talk to you. He said, you know, I don't, you know, we're a small company. I don't think, you know, we're a lot smaller than the companies you usually work for. And I I said, tell me more. And turns out he was the, the number two guy, like the chief operating officer for a small baking company based in central Massachusetts. And they make brownies and chocolate chip cookies and things like that um, for, for retail grocers. Turns out that one of their biggest customers, 40% of their revenue came from Walmart. And Walmart, was going out and asking all of their suppliers right. <laughs> to, be, to be reporting on greenhouse gas data, to be thinking about recycled content and packaging, to be providing this data back to Walmart. And so, you know, this is a small company and Walmart was a major, you know, um, a, a, an essential customer for them. And so they needed to think about how they could go about doing this. Turns out it was one of our best clients, you know, it was a small, pretty simple operation, two buildings in central Massachusetts. You know, we'd send a couple of consultants out there to go gather up data and to help them think about this stuff. They'd always come back with a big box filled with brownies and chocolate chip cookies and all Perfect. that stuff to, <laughs> to the office. Yeah. Best, best client ever. Yeah, um, But it just shows you that no matter how big you are, how small you are, you know, you're facing these pressures. And, you know, the key is thinking about how you can address these pressures, to get after these questions in a strategic, efficient manner so that you can keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is making money for your stakeholders and and, and for, your, for your shareholders.
0: Sounds like this might be a really, nice, a really nice story to end on because it shows that not only there's cascading effects and challenges, but there's also cascading positive effects where now a small baking company, is paying more attention to a lot of these factors and might be moving forward in a more positive way. And I wonder if you guys have reflections on what do you think ESG in this current, where we are right now, is it moving in a positive direction? How much change has it made as it's evolved over the years? I'll start with just some high-level
2: thoughts. I think overall, like we've talked about, it's a challenging topic. It encompasses a ton. It's supposed to encompass everything at your organization. And so that's that's a hard needle to move. But if we're thinking about it in the environmental space, I am encouraged by the amount of inquiries that I'm seeing and just um, efforts to at least get started in a lot of these spaces and, and start to quantify some of these environmental impacts as well as disclose and be a little bit more transparent about some of these ethical and governance topics. I think we have a challenge ahead of us a lot of targets are being set, and there needs to be significant, consistent, year-over-year progress, especially on these climate goals. And so, I mean, that's the the kind of hot topic, especially in this space and the context that we're talking about right now. But I'm I'm hopeful that we can really just continue to make those efforts, show the progress, implement the programs that are required to make that progress, um, and really hit these targets and goals that a lot of companies are taking a leap in putting out there.
1: I'm hopeful as well. Um, I'm less hopeful about the world keeping. I'm less hopeful about the world keeping global warming um, below a certain threshold. I think we've crossed various thresholds that are out there. But from an ESG perspective, I am hopeful because I think companies have realized that the ES&G subject matter does reflect possible risks and possible opportunities for the business if if you address these things in a strategic and efficient and meaningful way you can mitigate risks you can protect against downsides you can maybe realize some upsides to your business performance and the, you know that that creates value you know by definition i think you know companies are realizing that there is a value creation case to be made in the esng world and we're seeing a lot of progress in that direction.
0: And there's a lot more to it besides environment, right? There's social, there's governance and it if it impacts positively many different aspects of the world that we live in. So Absolutely. Good to end on a hopeful note and a positive note and um thanks for joining me for this part 1 and we'll we'll be talking about part 2 a week from now. Thanks for joining. Today's episode, part 1 of a two-part series, was a great primer on ESG and sustainability and how it's impacting the New England marketplace but also the global marketplace. Companies across sectors should really be aware of ESG especially as regulation becomes more widespread. If you're a large company or a small company, you're probably facing the pressure to up your ESG game. Next week we will transition the conversation. We'll focus on careers in ESG. It's a really hot field. There's a lot of job opportunities out there and they are wide-ranging so there's a really diverse skill set needed. So if you're curious about working in ESG or if you're a student wondering how to get involved in a sustainability career, you should listen in. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to the EBC website, ebcne.org. Please like, rate, review the podcast. I'm going to read the comments, um, leave a note about your favorite episode so far, or a topic you'd like to hear about coming up. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing. Music is only forward by Roman Scenic Music 2023.